O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength, by your Holy Spirit lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So we're continuing on. Uh, we have just basically gotten right to the resurrection. Um, we've spoken of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, um, what it means to say that uh, Jesus descended among the dead. Um, this is a hot and controversial subject. Um, I, I've seen lots of renderings of this in various thinking, lines of thinking. Um, you know, there are, there are some people in the Reformed tradition who say, you know, Jesus didn't descend among the dead. He suffered hell on the cross. And they don't, they don't want to say that Jesus went to hell. <laughs> that's, that's really not. And, but of course, I don't, that's not what the creed's saying, in fact. The creed's saying that Jesus descended among the dead. That's really the, the proper way to see that. Um, uh, there's a kind of, you know, again, you're, you're seeing all the sides of this, right? Which is that there are some, some places in the spectrum that you just don't want to go, right? And, uh, and sometimes people will say, no, it really needs to be in here. And other times they'll say, oh, it needs to be in here. Uh, but the... The, the way that uh, we speak of this is that Jesus' descended, Jesus' descent to the dead means that he truly died. He died in the way that every human being dies. Um, and that, that's, that's, I think, the base-level statement, right, is that by saying that Jesus descended among the dead, we're just saying that he died in every way that you can die. Uh, there wasn't anything held back from that, um, that his spirit did not remain with his body but entered the realm of death. Uh, but I would go a step further in working with Scripture and saying that saying something about how the gospel is proclaimed among the dead uh, by Jesus in his in his death. Um, and there are lots of great ancient homilies on this. You know, uh, Holy Saturday every year we read uh, this um, ancient homily from the fathers by an anonymous source that speaks of Christ descending among the dead, bearing his victorious weapon, the cross. And there's this kind of liturgy that goes on among the dead. It's kind of, it's awe-inspiring, and I can't, I can't get through it without tearing up because it's so beautiful, this, this idea that, or the, just the teaching that um, Jesus shares in, in human death in every way, and then what? <laughs> Rises victorious over the grave. So let's, let's pick up there. Um, I think we did a little bit of this last week, uh, but question 64, what does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus, I'm going to give you time to get there, <laughs> question 64, what does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated, God restored him physically from death to life in his perfected and glorious body, never to die again. His tomb was empty, Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Um, this is to say, well, what's the difference between resurrection and resuscitation? What's that? Well, yeah, one's a miracle. I think, I think you can almost say, like, if someone's resuscitated in a restaurant, maybe you'll say, God, that was a miracle. But there's something, there's a really important distinction. Yes. So it has, it's, it's, it's the same, but there's something really beyond that even. Yeah, right. So like, if you get resuscitated, you're still going to die. If you're, if you're resurrected from the dead, what happens? 
you'll never die again because you've already died. Um, that's already happened and, and you've lived. Um, and this is what Paul says. Christ being raised from the dead, what? Will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Um, and this is the teaching of the New Testament that Jesus descends among the dead, he rises from the grave, and death has no more dominion over him. Um, and well, a lot of that is that his body is now perfected, right? Um, we, don't, we don't think about this much, and we really should, but, but our bodies have a perfection toward which they're drawn, and it's not just kind of to do this forever and have this, this bodily life. Um, we see what the perfection of Jesus' physical body is, and we're going to see it in the coming questions, um, but that is to say that his, it is to have an eternal life. Um, it is to be with God forever. It is to be at the right hand of the Father. Um, and we should say this, it's his perfected and glorious body. What does it mean for his body to be glorious? Go ahead. Even better than that, right? Because think about it. Adam and Eve, we don't read about them kind of disappearing and reappearing. Uh, we don't read about them uh, being able to change their appearance. We know that, uh, that it's, you know, yes, we can just say they probably wouldn't have died had they not fallen. Okay. But um, their life is still not perfected, right? There's something that has not yet been perfected in them. And this, this raises a really interesting qu question in Christian theology, which is, can we think of the fall as happy or good because of what comes later? Is there something, is there a happiness and a glory that Adam and Eve did not have that you and I can have because of this resurrection? And that's why in the, uh, the great... Um, a hymn for the Easter Vigil, this it's called the Exultet. We say, Oh happy fault. <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a concept in the in the among the fathers that basically says there's a blessedness that Adam and Eve did not attain to even before the fall uh, that is open to us by the Lord's passion and his resurrection. Um, so that's a great thing, right? You just say there's a way in which Adam and Eve did not share in the glory of God. Um, now, God shows up for his walk, <laughs> for their walk in the afternoon, but they do not, uh, they do not have this perfect uh, or glorious life with God. Um, go ahead. Increasing maturation, I can understand. Yeah. Uh, the idea that the fall itself is necessary seems to make God dependent upon sin. Oh, I didn't say necessary. I said happy. Well, yeah. Right, happy, No, it says rather instead that God can take a disaster and make it better, can like that, use it. Right, so but in that case, you could have attained that goal without sin. Potentially, okay. but didn't. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's kind of the thing that's like, that's, that's what's so wild about this, right? It's like, you can think of all the other options, and that's not what happened. What happened was this. Um, and so that's a, it's, there's an important thing to just say, all the, all the things that could have happened didn't happen. This is what happened. Um, so it's a, it's a, a wild thing. Uh, I've been watching, um, 
uh, the great Marvel show Agents of Shield lately, which is just great television. And uh, and there's a there's a character that wants to rid the world of all regret, and she does this by basically zapping memories and putting people in this framework where they have no regret. And the the amazing thing about the show is like, yeah, they have no regret, but they also aren't really real, right? They're not human, so they have this kind of problem going on, um, and it's, uh, it's, well, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing on human nature. It's like, can you really, um, now, of course, there's a question is, you know, so can we envision human life without sin and death? Well, only insofar as it's restored to us, not having it originally. Um, we, 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 we have to, as Christians, think about it being restored to us, or even better than that. Um, so that's really the, the thing that I think is important about that. Now, you can, you can debate all day long. Was it necessary that the fall happened? Well, I don't know, but it did happen, right? And, and how does God use it? Um, what kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars, and ate with them. Um, we understand from the, from the gospel accounts that Jesus appears to his disciples over the period of 40 days. Um, well, that just, that preaches, doesn't it? Why 40 days? Oh, it's always 40. It's 40-something, 40 right? It's 40 days, 40 years, 40 weeks, you know, whatever it is. But, but you see that, you know, think about it, 40, 40 years in the wilderness, right? He spends 40 days in the wilderness, and then he spends 40 days revealing himself in his resurrected body to the disciples. Um, there's, there's an act in here of recreating human life um, according to the image of God, um, or, or uh, restoring it, or even better than that. Um, there's a kind of word in, in Greek that I wish we could use, that we had a good English cognate of, but, but it's essentially, the word is anachinosis. It's, it's basically to make new again, but it's even a better word than that. It means to restore to a better state. Um, this is the word that Paul uses when he says in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Right? It's much more like what you do in a house renovation. Um, this is actually what happens to Jesus' physical body. It's restored to him, but in what? A higher state. Um, so uh, my wife and I once bought a house. It was a 1977 uh, California house. Uh, and digging down a little bit, you could see that it was uh, because when we started doing some renovations, we found green linoleum floors in, under the kitchen, right? Uh, we, you know, are certain, I'm certain of it, that at some point there were green appliances in that kitchen, right? Um, I'm certain that there were probably pink toilets and pink other things in various walls. I'm certain of it. When we did the kitchen renovation, did we restore it to the way it was in 1977? Yeah. No, not on your life. We had, you know, soft closed drawers and, and cabinet doors. We had, uh, you know, stainless steel appliances. It looked awesome, right? But we restored it to a higher state. So you can see this is what happens in Jesus' risen body. Um, he is... Um, is it, is it the same body? But it's what? 
perfected, glorious, uh, um, and uh, that's really important now. We, there are implications for this, and I want to get to them just a little bit because we're going to get to them later, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question a bit. Um, you'll often hear Christians speak of, we'll get a new body in heaven. Is that what happened to Jesus? It's clear his body was renewed, right? But it wasn't like his body was sort of sloughed off and then left behind and he got any and he kind of like got a new body like you get a new car, right? Um, no, that's not it. Um, Christians believe that in the resurrection of the dead, our bodies will be restored and restored to a higher state. But go ahead. I, I'm just wondering about uh, the pre-resurrection resurrections, like Lazarus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, pre-resurrection resurrections. This is great. Uh, like Lazarus, uh, like, um, oh, goodness, like the... Um, the woman's son and, and, uh, and, and the prophets, yeah. Um, those are usually understood to be resuscitations because Lazarus still dies, right? Uh, uh, those who are risen from the dead, like, uh, they, they will still die ultimately. Their bodies are not uh, glorious like a resurrected body would be. Um, so that's an important kind of distinction, right? Um, there's, there's no sense that, you know, Lazarus lives forever, um, or, or lived forever in, in his body the way it was when it was restored, right? Um, now, that does raise a really interesting question. What about Elijah, right? <laughs> like, does he have a, a resurrected body? And, and we just don't know. We, we really don't know. Um, but that's, that's for another time. Um, should we talk about the ascension for a bit? Okay, this is the next part. So next the creed says, he ascended into heaven. How should you understand Jesus' ascension into heaven? Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. There he intercedes for his people and receives into heavenly life all who have faith in him. Though absent in the body, Jesus is always with me by his Spirit and hears me when I pray. Okay, so uh, the New Testament testifies, and this happens um, in really the Acts of the Apostles, and I believe it's in uh, Mark. Well, not Mark. It's in... It's definitely in the Acts of the Apostles, and it's in John as well. Um, he, he ascends out of their sight. Um, Jesus is taken up out of human sight. Um, he's returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. So what does this mean? This is the goods. So who's at the right hand of the Father now? Jesus, who is what? Fully God, fully human, right? At the right hand of the Father. That just encapsulates quickly um, what the Christian's hope is. Right? Because this is basic, basic Christian understanding of salvation is what happens to Jesus will happen to you. Um, lays forth. This is why uh, the writer of the letter of the Hebrews says he's the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. He's, this, this understanding that um, he has gone before us where we will go. Um, um, I go before you, Jesus says in John, to prepare a place for you um, so that where I am, what? You may also be, right? Uh, this, is, this is a recurring thing in Scripture. Um, what does he do there? 
And it sounds kind of, you know, I'm just going to be with the Father and we're just going to hang out. Like, no. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a constant work before the Father. It's a, it's a priestly work of intercession, um, which happens at the right hand of the Father constantly. Um, this is uh, um, not something we think about when we think about what a priest is. And we think, well, oh, God, you know, a priest, like, makes sacrifice and does stuff like that. Okay, yes. But, but what else? A priest makes intercession for the people constantly before the Father. Um, and so this is Jesus' uh, calling and vocation at the right hand of the Father is to intercede for us um, and also to receive into heavenly life um, those who have faith in him. Um, Jesus, we understand him to be absent in the body, but also what? It's a really wild thing about any good sermon on the ascension will say something like this. He's gone, but he's here. It's, it's a paradox, right? We don't, we don't say Jesus is gone, he's not here, um, and that's it. Because there's this tension, right? He says, I go away, but also what? I am with you, always. Um, how does this work? Um, well, I think we can say something about him being with us by the Holy Spirit, um, we can also say something which this answer does not give, which is that Jesus is certainly with his church, um, in his body, the church, and he's also with us in the sacrament. Um, he's with us in the Eucharist. Uh, this is why in this church we light a candle and keep it burning all the time on top of the tabernacle where the reserved sacrament is kept. Why? To say Christ is present here. Um, you should go when you get a chance and go back into the narthex and there's, there's a framed... Um, uh, excerpt from a sermon uh, by the Bishop of Zanzibar, Frank Weston, who, who basically speaks of this. You know, Christ is reserved here in the sacrament, um, but where do we meet him when we go out into the world? In the poor, in the homeless, in the hungry. Um, and, and this is to say that um, the, the presence of Christ is not something where we say he's 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 either here or not here. Because where's here? I mean, here's, here's the really wild metaphysical question. Where are you right now? Do you really know? Like, where are you? You can say, well, I'm in Waco, Texas. Yeah, where's that? When we think about God's world, where are you? Are you in his presence or are you not? Like, there's, there's this understanding that... Um, and this is where I'd really call you to it, because I think we've mentioned this in the past, but if you could just throw open the curtains of heaven right where you are right now and see what's beyond the veil, you would see all kinds of things, um, uh, including God's presence. Um, but this is to say that the, that the ascension speaks to this. It speaks to Jesus being present with, uh, with the Father, also present to us. Um, now, many people will kind of err on the side of he's gone, right? Many people will also err on the side of he's right here. Um, you have to hold, this is, a, this is one of those essential Christian paradoxes that you have to hold in tension. Um, what is the result of the ascension? Jesus ascended into heaven so that through him, his Father might send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Christians are united as Christ's body on earth to Jesus, are ascended in living head, and in him to one another. All right. 
This is, uh, this is really the, the joy of, of the ascension, is that the ascension makes possible the sending of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes at length speaking about this, that what is made possible by his going to the Father is the sending of the Holy Spirit. This is not a prominent feature in Western uh, theology. Um, it's a much more prominent feature in Eastern theology, um, the, the theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church, where they speak of this gift of the Holy Spirit uh, given at Pentecost as being the result of the ascension. In a sense, what happens is uh, Jesus intercedes constantly for his Holy Spirit to be poured out, um, and, uh, and, and um and the means of his continued presence in the world is a pneumatic presence in the world. Um, and this is something that we, we just are not good at speaking about in the West. Um, but one of the great examples is that, um, and this is how Anglicanism sort of has this, right? How is Christ present in the Eucharist? And we'll say more about this as we go on. After a spiritual manner, right? Meaning that the mode of his presence in the Eucharist is pneumatic, meaning that when we call down the presence of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts on the altar, this is called the Epiclesis. We do this every Sunday. We pray that it would be by the Holy Spirit that this happens. Um, this is to say that, it, that this is the mode of his continued presence, this is, uh, after, is by the Holy Spirit. Um, it's by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is given to us in, in the sacrament of baptism, that we're united to Christ's body. Um, um, and that is to say that, you know, one of the, one of the great things the old, the old ancient church used to say was that, uh, or this is a summation of it, but that there, there are three bodies of Christ. <laughs> this idea that there's his physical body, which he received from his mother Mary, there's his body, the church, and his body in the Eucharist. Um, and that, you know, how many bodies do you have? One. How many bodies does he have? Three. Right. Um, this is kind of just a play on this. That that there's. Um, of course, this gets to the point where you're on the edge of mystery. But um, we are joined together into Christ, who is the head, um, and and it is through Christ that we're joined to one another. And this is a common mistake in how we think about Christian unity. Right. Um, the way we often think about Christian unity is like this. It's like um, something like this. I have a faith, and Stevie, I don't want to put you on the spot, she has a faith, and isn't that great? And we agree about so much, so we're unified. Isn't that wonderful? Like, no, that is not how Christianity works. Christianity works by every Christian being united to the head in Christ. This is why uh, the identity of the church matters. Um, it can't just be, oh, we agree, and so we're a church. No, um, the the identity of the church is is. Uh, rooted in Christ, who is the head. All right. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean for Jesus to sit at God the Father's right hand? The throne on the monarch's right was traditionally the seat for the chief executive in the kingdom. Ruling with his Father in heaven, Jesus is Lord over the church and all creation, with authority to equip his church, advance his kingdom, bring sinners into saving fellowship with God the Father, and finally to establish justice and peace upon the earth. Um, this, is, this is a really wonderful question, but what does it mean for Jesus to exercise lordship from his place at the right hand of the Father? You might ask, where's the evidence? Right? Like, you could sit there and just ask, 
Okay, so if Jesus Christ is king and he's ruling from his throne in heaven, then why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why does all this bad stuff take place? Um, The church's teaching on this is that um, his being seated at the right hand of the Father um, means that, um, yes, he rules over all creation. He rules over his church. Uh, He has the authority to equip his church, to advance his kingdom. Um, Here's the thing that I think often gets lost. Uh, What gets lost in in the way that we imagine this is we imagine creation as having some other end than to be given to the church, given to Christ, for him to reign in it. Um, And so we think, well, the end of creation is for my happiness. It's for me to feel better about things, right? And and the reality of it is that uh, Christ's rule has as a, as a uh, necessary uh, component that um, it will not always be we get everything we want the way we want it. Um, it will mean that there will be times when, uh, when God's providence in the world seems baffling, right? Just, just like you can imagine a perfect king who rules with complete reason and does everything right. Are you going to be satisfied with that ruling every time? Not at all, right? In fact, one of the signs that he is ruling rightly is that you won't be satisfied with how it goes, right? Um, and, and I should also note that uh, there's a Christian capacity as well to understand that um, God in his providence permits certain things to happen while not actively willing them. So there's an understanding there as well. The fact that, uh, well, let's just put it this way. There was a car accident on Waco Drive. I'm sure of it. I don't know, but I'm sure there was uh, last week. Is that because Donald Trump wasn't doing his job? Okay, what are we thinking here, right? Uh, universal king, the universal kingship of Jesus does not mean that bad things won't happen, okay? Um, it, 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 it's something quite different. There's a different project going on here. Um, and that's why, for Christians, the kingdom of God is inherently an ecclesial project. It, it constantly makes reference to the church. Um, and so uh, this is the reason that Christians are constantly working to build up the church and, indeed, through the church to build up society. Um, so there's this often mistake where we say, well, it's our job to think about spiritual things and let the, <laughs> let the material things fester and die. No, uh, no, the, the project is, uh, is the kingdom, and the kingdom touches on both. Um, but, but it is... Um, it's essential that there be this tension, right? Because we'll often think, oh, it's the job of the church to sort of be like, a, like an NGO, doing all this good in the world. And like but without any compelling or a coherent theology about that. It's like, I'll just, I'll just tell you, right? The Christians who've done the most good in history have been the ones who were most committed uh, to the church's identity, most committed to her creedal faith. Um, and if you don't believe me, just read about St. Francis, okay? Because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, is that uh, there's kind of this idea that's very prevalent. It's, it's just... We wish Christians would just stop being so, uh, so creedal, stop being so, uh, so orthodox. You know, why, do you have to, why do you have to have all this you know, theological trappings? Why can't you just do good? And, and the answer is, we can't do good apart from Christ. It's impossible. Um, so this is, this is where we constantly go with this. All right. What does Jesus do for you as he sits at the Father's right hand? 
noting my needs and receiving my prayers, Jesus intercedes for me as our great high priest. Through Jesus and in his name, I am now granted access to the Father when I make my confessions, praises, thanksgivings, and requests to him. Jesus constantly notes our needs, receives our prayers. Um, This is to say, quite simply, that um, he knows our needs before we do. Um, There's a great collect, uh, you know, um, and I I wish I could quote it directly, but it says, you know, who always knows our needs and, uh, but also knows our ignorance in asking, right? (laughs) Because there's part of this too, which is that um, we... By asking for certain things, we, we sort of, we don't really know uh, how powerful God is, nor do we know just how much he's already providing. Um, so this is, this is to say that Jesus is constantly making intercession at the right hand of the Father, um, and, and in this priestly way, um, receiving my prayers. Um, this is why we pray in the name of Jesus. Um, such an important thing that's been going on for, for a long, long, for ever since the church was, uh, was established. Um, we are granted access to the Father through the Son. There's a great uh, apocryphal story that I like to tell about this, um, and I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, it's a story about uh, a Civil War private um, who received a letter from his mother and his, and his sister saying, uh, son, you need to come home and help us with the harvest. It's coming in, and we're, we're both terribly ill. We can't do it. If you don't come, we're going to be in a heap of trouble. And so he goes to his commanding officer and says, I need to have some leave to go help with the harvest at home. And the commanding officer says, son, didn't you notice there's a war going on here? <laughs> and so he says, well, what can you do for me? So I'll give you three days leave. And so he takes his three days leave, and he goes uh, wandering through the forest, and he, he, he decides that he's going to go to Washington, D.C., so he goes to Washington, D.C., and he sits down. It's a union. If some of you Southerners can sympathize for a bit with this guy. Um, he goes to the president. He goes to the, to the White House, and he says, I'm just going to go to the president and, ask for, and ask, for, um, ask for leave. Well, all the guards of the White House turn him down. They say, nope, you've got to go back to the lines. This is, uh, and he's running out of time. Well, he's sitting there on a park bench in the White House's lawn, and, uh, and this little boy comes along playing this, you know, stick and wheel game. And the uh, little boy says, what's the matter, sir? And the private tells him his, his, uh, his deepest problems. And the little boy says, I think I could do something about that. He says, come with me. So they go right up to the guardhouse. The guard salutes, waves them through. And they wander down a hallway, and they wind up in the Oval Office. And sitting in his chair is a tall man. The little boy runs around to the chair, and he says, Hey, Dad, I got a problem for you. And the man says, Tell me what it is, son. He says, There's a private here who could use a leave to help his family. And, you know, the leave was granted that day. Because, and this is just a, a way to illustrate what the high priesthood of Jesus looks like. Um, uh, to have a son who is uh, um, approved and loved and, and uh, who, who enjoys the ear of the Father. Um, this is what we've got in prayer. All right. How does your knowledge of Jesus' heavenly ministry affect your life today? I can rely on Jesus always to be present with me as he promised, 
and I should always look to him for help as I seek to serve him. Um, we can rely on the presence of Jesus in daily life. Um, now, again, this is one of those wonderful paradoxes, right? Anyway, let me just say a little bit about this. Um, all of life is defined by paradoxes, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. Why is it that drugstores sell cigarettes in the front and prescription drugs in the back? It's nonsense, and yet it's the way things are. Um, why, why on earth is it that if you eat um, too little food, you die? If you eat too much food, you die. If you eat just the right amount, you'll live and thrive, etc. Um, why do these things happen? Why, are we, why do we live in this world where the extremes are not where life is found? Um, because life is defined by these, by these ultimate paradoxes. Um, and this is one of the reasons that Christians uh, and Orthodox Christians are unique. Um, we embrace paradox. Um, think about it. Think about just the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ for a moment. If you, if you uh, emphasize his humanity too much, what do you wind up with? Heresy, right? You wind up with some kind of adoptionism or something like that, right? Emphasizes divinity too much to the neglect of his humanity, what do you wind up with? Something like Nestorianism, uh, you know, something like that, right? But it's in the, it's in the middle, and not even the middle, but the, the, uh, the, the cohesive uh, vision where the truth is found. Um, and this is why you'll always notice heresy always kind of embraces the extreme, always embraces one side or the other. Um, and, and Christian orthodoxy is always kind of embracing the whole and saying, how can we have it all? Now, much of life, just as is the case with the truth, is, is defined by this. It's, a, it's an ability to creatively live with attention and paradox. Um, one of my favorite writers, Esther DeWall, says, this is how you live is to just be creative with the, with the paradoxes of life, right? It's, I'm so tired because of this, but I'm so energized by this. So what do I do? Well, don't just be tired all the time, right? But also don't just give up, right? You've got you've to you've work through that paradox. Um, so maybe that'll help you out today. Um, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. What does the creed mean when it says, he will come again? Jesus promised that he would return. His coming in victory with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. The present world will pass, order will pass away and God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. All the saints will be together with God at that time. Okay, let's break this down. Jesus promised that he would return. Um, this is something that we as Christians don't like to think about a lot, uh, but there is nonetheless this promise that he will return. Part of the issue that we face is that um, many people in the ancient world and in, in, in the ancient church believe that that would happen sooner than it in fact did. Um, but I always love to be reminded of what uh, Stanley Hauerwas says, which is this, for all we know, we are the early church. Um, which I find comforting, right? It's like, oh, well, that's great, <laughs> and we've got plenty of time. Uh, but, but there is still this understanding that, you know, it, the, this coming has been delayed in some way, uh, but we still look forward to it. His coming in victory with great, with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. Um, 
This is to say that he will come uh, with victory. Victory over what? Yeah, sin, death, all, all those things. Uh, as as uh, Revelation says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, these enemies will be destroyed. Uh, the present world order will pass away. Um, and this is to say something I think really important, which is that Christians don't look for the destruction of creation, but something else, which is the renewal of creation. Um, again, this idea of anachinosis, restored to a higher state. Um, well, why is that? It's God's creation. It's good, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's been this sort of tendency among many to say, yeah, but it's, is it really? So let's just hope that God will just destroy it. And we'll just, you know, we'll get that right. No, God, God loves it. He cares for it. Um, and so it will be, re- it will be renewed, uh, and that renewed creation will stand forever. Um, we need to understand, and, and this is one of the things I love, I love celebrating St. Francis Day because all this stuff comes into focus, but one of the things Francis is really good about talking about um, is, is how creation is an arena for the glory and worship of, of Christ. Um, and he speaks of all the elements of creation as joining in this chorus of praise. Um, to the Father. Um, so that's, that's a big key. Um, all the saints will be together with God at that time. Um, who are the saints? We'll just jump forward a little bit. Hopefully you and me, right? Like, I, think, I think we can say, that, say with confidence that, yes, that, that is us, the, the ones who have been joined together with Christ. Um, but we'll say more about that when we get to the section on the communion of saints. When should you expect Jesus' return? Jesus taught that only the Father knows the actual day of his return. God patiently waits for many to repent and trust in him for new life. Yet Jesus will return unexpectedly and could return at any moment. Only the Father knows. Um, this has been a, a really know, sticky point in, in, uh, in Christian history as people saying things like, oh, it'll be March 24th of next year. And then, you know, uh, I lived in California where there, well, there was this one uh, evangelist, or I don't even know what you call him, probably I'll call him Quack, right, who was saying, uh, you know, it's coming, you know, so take out a mortgage on your house. What was his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, were, there have been many of them throughout time, but, uh, you know, the old Campbellites, you know, they used to do this too, um, uh, project out the, the coming of Christ, right, and then constantly be dialing it back until they just stop talking about it. Um, but but it's to say that um, we, we just don't know, right? We, we really don't know. Um, and this is, in fact, what Jesus says directly. No one knows the hour. Um, well, what's going on in the meantime? Um, I think we can say something about uh, God's desire is that all have an opportunity to repent, that all have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Um, many of my missionary friends, one of the things that motivates them is, is this desire to see all nations hear uh, the gospel. Uh, they're very serious about this. Um, now, they're not doing it to provoke Jesus' second coming. That's not what they're doing, although some have done that. Um, they're doing it because they have this desire, and, the, and I think God's planted it in them, uh, to see all nations come to repentance and come to the gospel. Um, that's going on in the meantime. What, what, another way to put it is that the kingdom is advancing till the end of time. 
Um, and this is the project that Christians are involved in, is this, um, this, uh, this flourishing of the kingdom. What should be your attitude as you await Jesus' return? I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus as the completion of my salvation. The promise of his return encourages me to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. Ah, the completion of my salvation. Uh, many people today, and this has been going on for some time, speak of salvation as an already given thing. The New Testament uh, does that, but also speaks of salvation as something which is coming, something which has not been fully realized yet, as of yet. Um, we have to hold these two in tension, um, and it's an important thing to do so. Uh, well, you know, I think you would just say, why? Um, on the one hand, if we just believe that it's all wrapped up in a done deal, what does that do to you? It can kind of fill you with presumption, right? You sort of say, eh, it's all fine. <laughs> and, and, you know, or, or worse, it's like, God's got nothing on me. I'm, you know, I'm clean as a whistle. Um, no, salvation is not yet complete. Um, and I think that, you know, this is all, all in good intentions, but part of what doesn't happen is the speaking of uh, something greater coming, um, a greater life to which we're called. Um, and what is this life? This, this life is life with Jesus, um, to be um, um, with him. And this promise encourages me uh, to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. Um, we don't live as if it's Jesus returning, look busy. Um, that's not the idea. <laughs> um, the idea is, and the, and the Christian teaching on this is, is, is rather this. Um, to pray uh, for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be increased in us, um, to live life, to be a saint. I mean, we fall short of that every single day. Uh, but this is the calling of Christians. And to share this hope with others, um, to give, uh, to give uh, witness to the hope that's in us. Okay, let's do one more question. How should you understand Jesus' future judgment? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the world as we know it will come to an end. All that is wrong will be made right. All people who have died will be resurrected, and together with those still living will be judged by Jesus. Then each person will receive either eternal rejection and punishment or eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Okay, this has several hot-button issues at the time, right? There's a, there's a book going around, and this is not any new thing, but but books that speak about uh, something which is called universalism, this idea that um, uh, at the end of the day there will be no hell, uh, that even hell will be eaten up by, by God's grace and, and uh, protection. I have to say, this is a marginal belief held by some Christians throughout history, and it has always been condemned. Um, so I'm just going to say that from the start. So no matter what you might hope for, right? <laughs> okay, and this is where the line is. I think you all ask, where's the line? Well, the line is, I think, we certainly should hope for the salvation of all. You can hope for that. Uh, but the realist, the realist should tell you, yeah, but let's be honest. What is judgment if not that? So we have to be clear about that. Uh, the judgment in the New Testament sense and in the Old Testament sense as well is, is a sorting. Um, 
It is to put things right that are not right. Okay? Um, and one of the big questions in the Old Testament, for instance, is why is it that the wicked prosper? I mean, why is it that my neighbor who is involved in some sort of scheme, who, you know, does this and does that and uh, is awful to his kids and awful to all the rest, and he's awful to me, right? <laughs> and yet he seems to be doing great. And here I am trudging along, right? Why is it that my coworker, who's uh, a bear to be around, gets a raise and I don't? Why does that happen? Um, this is one of the really brutal questions of life. Um, why is it that uh, people can, can just seem to pull off enormous atrocities and not seem to get uh, justice? Um, well, the answer is that uh, in, in the Christian understanding that, that judgment is coming. Um, it is absolutely coming. Um, now, how does this work? Well, First off, the world as we know it will come to an end, right? Uh, now, is this to say that creation will zap out of existence? No. The world refers to something else here. Um, this is the world as Jesus refers to it. You're in the world, but not of it. Um, uh, this, um, another way to put it would be the age that we're in will come to an end. Well, how do we define the age? Hmm. More of that, right? Like, people prosper in, uh, in sinful schemes. Um, we live in a world where often, very often, might makes right. We live in a world that's defined by all kinds of atrocities. You know, human slavery, sex trafficking. I mean, you can just go down the list and you can see it. Um, judgment addresses this. Well, how does it work? Well, first, all who have died will be resurrected. Like who? like Jesus. All. So Christian teaching is this, that the resurrection of the dead is not just for Christians. It's actually for, it's called the general resurrection, which means what? All the dead will be raised. Um, which is really the surprising thing about Easter, I think, actually. Which is not like, okay, well, you're, 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 you're a Christian, so you'll be raised, but not the other guy. No, Christians speak of the, what happens in the resurrection of Jesus happening to absolutely everyone, um, meaning something really wonderful, right? Which is that death doesn't define human life at the end of the day. Death doesn't get the last word. Um, it's one of the things that I love about Anglican uh, burials is that no matter what, we, we never, and we should never, and this is one of the things I hate about funerals today. Funerals are kind of like either a celebration of life where we're like, oh, he was just great and we loved him and he was so wonderful and blah, blah, blah. It's like, please don't do that at my funeral. I will come back and haunt you. <laughs> I don't want that, okay? On the other end is something like this. Oh, he's in heaven now and isn't that great and and nah, nah, nah. No, 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 not that. An Anglican funeral looks like this. It begins... I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believe in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Okay? It's constantly speaking of the resurrection. Why? Because our hope as Christians is not in, I lived a great life. Or even in, 
I get to go to heaven when I die. Where's our hope? It's in Jesus who defeated death. It's the only locus of our hope. Okay. Um, so this is important. <laughs> and and it, this is why the Christian concept of judgment and hope have run together. Okay. Um, well, think about it for a moment. If injustice and trouble and death are things that will continue on in creation forever, is that something to be hoped for? No. Instead, we hope that everything will be put to right. Even the worst things will be put to right. Um, this, is, this is what judgment is. And it, it's not a sort of... Um, even when, in the New Testament, Jesus describes it as a sorting, right, between the sheep and the goats, it still is because we're so, de- we're so detached from, from, uh, from agriculture, we can't even understand what separating sheep from goats even means, right? We, we can't even understand it, but I will explain it to you. Uh, because we think, oh, well, that's some to judgment, some to, some to, uh, some to life, you know, that, isn't that great? No, <laughs> here's the difference. Um, a friend of mine was in, the, was in the Holy Land, and he was watching a shepherd moving a flock across the, across the land, and he was beating on this animal mercilessly with a stick. And my friend said, I thought shepherds were supposed to be meek and mild and all the rest. And he said, oh, that's not a shepherd. That's a goat herd. He's leading those goats to slaughter. <laughs> he doesn't care what happens to their legs. He needs to get them in the truck and fast. Do you see what's going on? Shepherds are meek and mild to the sheep because if you get blood on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a fleece, it ruins it. You've got to care for that sheep. You've got to care for its life. The difference between sheep and goats is one is destined for death, the other one's destined for eternal fruitfulness, right? Um, this is to judge. Um, and this is what happens at the end of time. Um, some will... Inherit eternal death, eternal rejection, eternal punishment, others eternal blessing, eternal life. Um, now, we can talk at length, and we will, about the basis for this. <laughs> but at the end of the day, this is about, um, this is about uh, God's judgment. But it's really, and I think we need to see it this way, it's about God's mercy. Um, setting the world to right is a great gift of love. Um, this is not to say something like this. God just sort of is arbitrary about this. Oh, you get to go to hell. No, yeah, no, you go to hell. Like, that's not how judgment works. It's not how it functions. Um, and the best way to put this, uh, and I think we do say this later, is that um, we have nothing to fear in judgment. Why? Because our judge is our Savior, right? That's, the end. That's, that's what we need to say and say boldly that our judge is our Savior, um, and so we look forward to him setting the world to right. Um, this, is, this is the basis of hope, um, and so uh, we give thanks for that today. Uh, we'll continue on next week. Thank you.